Are you selling a little or a lot? Either way, Shopify helps you do your thing. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. It helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. In fact, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And now you can sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Most of the business owners who listen to No Bullshit Leadership want to go large. What's so cool about Shopify is that no matter how big you want to grow, it gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash leadership or lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash leadership now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash leadership. Welcome to the No Bullshit Leadership Podcast. In a world where knowledge has become a commodity, this podcast is designed to give you something more. Access to the experience of a successful CEO who has already walked the path. So join your host, Martin Moore, who will unlock and bring to life your own leadership experiences and accelerate your journey to leadership excellence. Hey there, and welcome to episode 256 of the No Bullshit Leadership Podcast. This week's episode... Barriers to Building EQ, with our expert guest, Dr. Rebecca Heiss. The concept of emotional intelligence, or EQ, isn't new. It was a subject of academic research way back in the 1960s. But it took another 30 years before we gained widespread awareness of it through Daniel Goleman's classic book, Emotional Intelligence. While academics may still argue over whether or not EQ is a true predictor of success, when you put it next to IQ and the Big Five personality traits, there's little doubt in my mind that EQ is one of the foundational elements of great leadership. The four basic domains of EQ are self-awareness, self-management, social awareness, and relationship management. These days, of course, we've got fairly robust tests for measuring someone's EQ on these four dimensions, and I would never hire a senior executive without putting them through those tests. It's not the be-all and end-all, it's just another data point to calibrate your observations from the other parts of the recruitment process. So as a true believer in the value of EQ, I was interested to come across an article a few weeks ago by Farah Harris, the four most common barriers to building emotional intelligence. Now instead of doing what I'd normally do, which is just to give you a 20-minute diatribe from my own perspective, today I've enlisted the aid of Dr. Rebecca Heiss. Rebecca is an expert in all things human behaviour and leadership. Her book, Instinct, is all about how to rewire our brains to remove some of the barriers to success. Since we run in the same professional speaking circles, I asked Rebecca to help me test my own beliefs about EQ and give us a more empirical basis for our discussion on the subject. So, let's get into it. So Rebecca Heiss, welcome to the No Bullshit Leadership Podcast. It's great to have you with us today. Oh, thanks so much for having me on. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, no worries. And look, occasionally... I just need an expert. And this is one of those areas when we start talking about EQ, in my view, I've got a pretty good handle on this stuff, but there's nothing like hearing it from the horse's mouth and you've dedicated your life to this. So really looking forward to getting your perspective on it from a more expert place than I come from. 
Man, well, I'll tell you, Marty, that makes you a little bit nervous because my whole theme is no expertise, right? Like start with beginner's mindset. So we'll see. We'll see how it goes. Sure. And, and you know, the people in our community can actually uh, appreciate that and respect it because everything we do is going back to basics and doing the basics super well. Yep. E EQ is so interesting to me because we, we talk about it now like it's always been part of the leadership domain. Um, I'm just, I don't know, a year or two older than you. And when I started my career in the mid-1980s, the term EQ was virtually unheard of. Yeah. So is the evolution of EQ a natural extension of our learnings about human behavior and relationships over the last you know, 100 years plus, or is there something else going on? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think there's two things there, um, really. It was really 1995, and it was Daniel Goldman's book by the same name, right, Emotional Intelligence, that really started getting, getting really popularized. And, um, and the reason for that is because his contention was that EQ matters more than IQ. And I think there's some gold there because people kind of leaned into that, like, oh, I don't have to be you know, super intelligent. I don't have to be because we thought about IQ as being a very fixed trait. And EQ gives us this wiggle room to say, oh, well, maybe I can grow as a leader if I just focus on these things. And so I think it was a really appealing concept and it's kind of taken off. Um, and the second reason that I think we're talking more about EQ is, and, you know, not to get too controversial off the bat, but I think we really started to explore EQ as a result of women moving into positions of leadership and power. Uh, so, you know, the 80s, 90s, you start to see more and more women in these in these areas. And talking about leadership from an emotional or a relational perspective is a lot more readily acceptable for women in society than it maybe is for men still. Uh, so I think the timing of the EQ movement kind of worked. Yeah, you, you just had to take us there on the very first question, didn't you? <laughs> I did. Good on you. I, I mean, that's, that's, <laughs> no, that's, that's why you have me on, Marty. I know, I know. Exactly and I, I never would have thought of that, but it's, a, it's an absolutely valid point. Uh, talking about the Daniel Goleman work, though, and, and the fact that IQ is seen as being fixed in nature, I do talk about this thing called uh, apparent IQ, as I've dubbed it, which is mm. you can appear a lot smarter than you actually are if you are a voracious learner who consumes content, mm. gets good people around them and, and doing a whole bunch of other things. So um, IQ probably isn't even as fixed as we thought it was, you know, 100 years ago when Wexler and these guys are studying it. Yeah, and you're, you're spot on. And that's, that's actually old science. You know, IQ was thought to be fixed. It's not. You know, we've had, we've talked about growth mindset and there's all kinds of, of new science suggesting that genetics don't really predetermine as much as we thought when it comes to IQ or EQ or any of these measures of intelligence. Yeah, well, that's, I mean, so true. But, but when we look at the human condition generally and our evolutionary state, um, I talk about uh, the fact that leadership requires us to do things that go against our fundamental nature. And I know you talk a lot about our brains being designed for a completely different set of operating conditions, so to speak. Uh, they haven't evolved as rapidly as the environment in which we're supposed to operate now. Bingo. So can you just give us a quick overview of that principle? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, basically we are living in a modern environment with stone age brains. So if you think about the all of the environmental pressures that we had in ancestral times, lions, tigers, and bears, oh my, you know, weather, storm, having to find enough food, finding mates, that's what our brain evolved to do, to help us survive and reproduce. Now, Survival and reproduction today, probably not our highest priorities, um, but that's still what our brain is operating under. And so sugar is probably the easiest way to explain this. You know, our ancestors couldn't get enough fats and sugars to survive. So we've evolved these mechanisms to say, oh, fats and sugars, they taste so delicious. It's what we crave. 
And yet you put that kind of brain into a modern environment where you've got, you know, 5,000 calories for $5 in under five minutes. And we've got a bit <laughs> of a problem, right? Now, all of these things that were healthy for us are holding us back. And it's the same thing for any, I mean, anything that you're talking about in leadership, we're going against the grain, against what our brain says, this seems right. This is, you know, this, this Big Mac is absolutely what I need right now. It's healthy. It's going to help me. No, it's not. Right? It's going to lead to, to negative outcomes. Mm. Oh, absolutely. So many of those around, aren't there? Yeah, plenty. So when we talk about this, when we talk about this reptile brain, um, let me get technical, the amygdala, Ooh, nice. as uh, for me, that's, that's as far as my technical knowledge of this stuff goes, <laughs> Rebecca, don't worry. How does this inhibit our behavior in leadership situations like uh, having uh, conflict conversations or dealing with a crisis? Yeah, well, really our brains care about two things and survival and reproduction, right? It's just, that's it, that's it, it's sex or survival. Um, and really, it's only survival. So it always prioritizes survival. So if we're in a situation where there's conflict or crises, our body, our body operates basically in this reptilian part of our brain. So we're not processing, we're not having those cognitive conscious thoughts that we're trained to have, right? We, we can read as many books on leadership as we want, but if you're not training the subconscious brain, you're not going to operate this in the way that you want to in those crisis situations. Um, one of my favorite stress researchers, Robert Sapolsky, always says that you know stress is designed, our stress response is designed for those three minutes of screaming terror on the savannah. And after three minutes, that's it, right? It should be over. Either you're dead or the stressor's over. But that's not what happens in leadership, right? We're constantly facing crisis and conflict situations. So what our body is doing is actually acting against us in those moments. It's telling us to fight, you know, to flee the situation, to freeze, to procrastinate, to not make decisions. And so we have a lot of work to do to override all of these protective um, reptilian responses to stress, to conflict. Yeah, and this, this is a concept that intrigues me because in my corporate career, I learned that I couldn't stop the initial reaction. That is, it's, it's autonomic, it comes from an instinctive place, and I couldn't stop that, but I could recognize it and really quickly shift myself and my own thinking into the conscious realm. And so I developed you know, a few tools for that over the years, which I now teach. And, and I think that in itself is really, really satisfying and comforting to know that regardless of how difficult or stressful the stimulus is, there is a way to trap it and react to it consciously before it becomes a problem in your thinking and demeanor. Uh, what do you think about that? Yeah. That's huge. That's huge, Marnie. What you're talking about is the gap, right, between the stimulus and the response. And we can't necessarily stop the reaction. Our body is going to have a physical reaction. The adrenaline is going to go, you know, your cortisol is going to be released. But what you do with it, that's our choice. And that is such a powerful lesson for every leader to learn, right? Your body may be telling you something and it may be very natural for you to react in a particular way, but that doesn't mean you have to. And your training, I'm sure, is gonna be phenomenal for, <laughs> for helping us get to that gap, that space, increasing that space between reaction and response. Well, that's awesome because at least it tells me there's an empirical basis for my anecdotal responses to how I do these things. This is awesome. <laughs> right? I love that. Yeah, I, love that. Actually, back by, I can send you all the literature. Yeah, I, I'm going to put a new stamp on my content, you know, backed by science, signed Rebecca Heiss. Thank you. I'll do it. Done. Sold. <laughs> now, I've often said that a leader should have boundless empathy. Now, this is based on the concept that empathy is purely about the ability to see the world through someone else's eyes. 
And I think there's a subtle but very important distinction in my head between empathy and sympathy. And in case anyone's wondering, sympathy is not a good thing in leadership. So first of all, how do you see the relationship between EQ and empathy? Yeah, first of all, can I just touch on the empathy and the sympathy piece? Because if you haven't watched it, there's an excellent Brene Brown um, short where basically sympathy is like, oh, something's going wrong here, have a sandwich, right? It's not fixing the problem. But um, back to your question on relationship between EQ and empathy. Um, I think there's almost a direct correlation, right? EQ really requires an added element though, where, where empathy is the ability to understand how others are feeling, um, which, is, which is critical. Um, EQ involves more than just being able to recognize it, it's actually responding to. So controlling your own response and helping others um, understand and control their responses to, to their emotions. So EQ kind of takes it one step further. Right, okay, I, I get that, that's, that's really good. So I guess the question, please feel free to contradict me, is there such a thing as too much empathy? So I think there is. I, I love your concept of boundless empathy because I do think the world could use a lot more empathy. But I would draw the line there because there is kind of a, we'd say it as a condition, right, of hyper-empathy or an empathic, um, as we sometimes refer to these people, where their feelings actually become entangled with other people's feelings. And so they're continuously mirroring back to others what the other person is feeling. So that can really lead you to not make great decisions as a leader. Uh, you know, I think we can all think about situations where as leaders, we've made a decision, a really tough decision for someone at the time when they weren't capable of making that decision for themselves. And if we had just boundless empathy, we might get into their feelings and say, oh, well, this is really, they're gonna, they're gonna be hurt by my decision to terminate them at this point. Even if termination really is the best course of action for that person, they might not be able to see it at that moment. So, I mean, having boundless levels of empathy, I wanna push back just a touch on that because again, empathy, very helpful, but only to a point. If we're getting caught in those continuous loops of, of just recognizing other people's feelings, it can become a problem. Right, okay, yeah, I, I couldn't agree more with that. And we're, we're probably down to semantics, I think, Rebecca, because what I say is, Empathy in the hands of a strong leader is incredibly powerful. It's like rocket fuel because a strong leader will make those decisions that need to be made with the understanding of where the other person is. And when you talk about that entanglement and enmeshment of uh, your feelings and the other person's feelings and that understanding, that's what I call sympathy. So we're sort of talking semantics, but I, ah, okay. Very I, good. But I completely agree with the point that there's got to be a line and a strong leader will use empathy the right way, a weak leader will let that morph into sympathy and make all those bad decisions for the wrong reasons. So I think, I think we're on the same page, funnily enough, which is good. I think so too. I think maybe it's like a time distinction, a sympathy, like you're doing the thing in the moment that you think is right, even if it's not right long-term. Yes. And empathy requires that like second level of going, no, pause. This may be the hard decision to make right now, but it's the right one. That's, that's a fantastic point. The impact of time on the way you respond to those, those um, emotional stimuli. They're fantastic, I love that. Now, Rebecca, in the introduction, I mentioned Farrar Harris's article where she talks about the limiting behaviors that block our ability to develop EQ. And she cites four of them, anger, anxiety, apathy, and pride. So first of all, do you agree with these inhibitors to growth? And if not, what would you add or change on that list? Yeah, um, actually, very interestingly, they map 
really well to the stress responses that we naturally have as, as humans. So anger, right? That's the fight response. Anxiety, that would be the flight response, like you're running away from the situation. Apathy, that's your freeze response where you just kind of don't do anything. It's procrastination. Um, and then pride is an interesting one because pride actually um, might be a result of sexual selection. So full stop, anger, anxiety, apathy. Those are, those are escape, you know, flee, fight, freeze, get away from the predator. Those are, those are survival mechanisms. And then pride, I would add jealousy and pride to that because I think those are sort of the sexual selection, um, if you will. What that means is that how do we show ourselves? How do we show ourselves as valuable to potential mates? And this can get really tricky because in our brains, our brains are going, ooh, you know, that person is, you know, higher up on the hierarchical ladder. That person is doing better than me. So jealousy might actually stop us from getting curious and figuring out, you know, how, why are they doing well? What are they doing right? Pride, on the other hand, can say, well, I already know all the things. So why would I even, why would I even bother learning more about myself, learning more about others? And I think both of those things could stand in our way. Uh, but I do think it's really interesting that they map so nicely onto uh, sort of the Darwinian selection forces. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, Farah Harris is a psychotherapist, so you'd expect that she's got a pretty good handle on this stuff, right? Um, <laughs> yeah, which, yeah, not too bad. And, and when you talk about pride, you know, as you go up a leadership hierarchy, what I've noticed in the past is people have got more to lose and they've got more to protect. And so mm. quite often you'll see leaders at, at very high levels in large organisations who have survived on becoming more and more closed off and more and more prideful in a way that I call believing your own bullshit. <laughs> So have, you, have you noticed that type of correlation? Yeah, and I, I actually think the the scary bit there is the more you believe your own bullshit, um, the more armored you become and the more defensive you yeah. become, right? And it gets harder and harder because it's heavier and heavier to remove that armor and actually see through it. Uh, so yeah, no, I absolutely see that correlation. And, and it becomes scarier and scarier because as you move up that ladder, um, you have to to some degree, believe that you belong there. And sure. I think for so many of us, we get trapped in these imposter thoughts, right? Rather than recognizing, listen, everybody feels like they don't belong. Everybody feels a little bit like they don't deserve that promotion. Everybody feels like they might fail. Everybody feels those things at some point. And even the people at the very top are feeling that. So the best leaders as I see it aren't layering up that armor. Um, they're actually the ones that are often the most ambiguous about like, I don't know, what do you think is the best step? I don't know. And really getting curious in that. Um, but yeah, I, I unfortunately do see that, that trend a lot. Yeah, right. Well, look, I, I talked a lot about leaders about um, the need to do the hard work of leadership, the things that are the most important to be done because they're right, because they're necessary and because they're the best overall. We're programmed to seek affiliation and acceptance. So I talk about the need for leaders to adopt this mantra of respect before popularity. Do you think you can ever fully overcome this need to be liked? Or is it going to be a constant counterforce that pulls you back from doing the hard work of leadership when it's necessary? What a great question. Um, yeah, you know, I, I want to question actually if you ever really fully want to overcome the need to be liked, right? Those, those people tend to be sociopaths. There's a reason <laughs> that we... 
I'm just saying it's true. Right. right? There's a reason. There's a reason that we've evolved to need or really desire the um, wanting to be liked. Right. Well, thanks. Uh, thanks we for coming on the show, Dr. Rebecca Heist. <laughs> Listen, I, I agree with your premise, right? I think leaders have to be comfortable with rejection. They have to be comfortable not being liked because they're there to make the tough decisions. However, I think that stress, that feeling that we have when we when we experience this, like, oh gosh, they're not gonna like me. I think that's a good thing because stress is there as a signal. It's hard because it should be. So it's a good checkpoint, I think, right? Um, if you're if you're super comfortable not being liked all the time, there's a problem on the other side as well. So um, can you overcome your feeling? Yeah. Do you want to? No. But I think I think having a, a very nice balance of recognizing this is hard, checking myself and saying it's still the right decision um, is probably the most powerful situation to sit in. Right. Okay. Now, interesting. Let me just flip this a little bit because you and I have pretty strong yeah. social media profiles, right? And yeah, and I've, true. I've said to Emma. You know, you're not successful until you get trolled, because if you haven't been <laughs> if you haven't been trolled, you're not trying hard enough. You're not pushing the boundaries, and you're not finding enough people. Because surely some people aren't going to like what you're saying. And so I find that in the last five years, I've become even less interested in what people think about me. Because for me, maybe it's just a, a factor of age, but for me, I look at it and I go, well, okay, some people. I'm not for everyone. I know that, and that's fine. And it just doesn't phase me at all. I'm so relaxed about it. And when I get trolled, I'll go straight onto the, you know, text or, you know, DM with, with Emma and just say, hey, look, we got another one. Woohoo. <laughs> right on track. <laughs> I think there's great power there. I absolutely do. Because yeah, to your point, like, you're not saying anything. You're not, you're just contributing to noise. If everybody's like, yay, I like it. Yay, this is great. Right? It's just more noise out there. If you're not saying anything, then you're not going to get any pushback. So I do think that's a great measure. Um, and I think it's an incredibly powerful space to be leading from that authentic space that says, yeah, screw it. I'm not for everybody. Here's what I think, though. Um, and my challenge would be, yes, and read the trolls messages, because every now and then there might be a point that you're like, huh, I hadn't considered that. Most of the time it's going to be it's going to be garbage. But every now and then you're like, hmm, interesting perspective. And at least you get to understand how their psychology works. Totally, totally. I, I tell you what, though, I do draw the line at people dissing the jackets I wear. Okay, that's that's. What I draw the line. <laughs> Who else, would do that? Else I'm fine no with. Way. I know. <laughs> okay, listen. If anybody has any complaints, just keep them to yourself. This is my favorite jacket. So <laughs> totally. I wore it for y'all. <laughs> Rebecca, I've said in the past that resilience is one of the easier leadership competencies to build. Now, let me explain. Uh, the reason I say that is because you don't have to go looking for opportunities. There are a whole lot of other things you can avoid, but you can't avoid the sorts of you know, stresses, obstacles, setbacks, disappointments that you get just in life in general and in your career. Uh, so add to this the fact that there are some fairly simple tools you can deploy to build resilience, and I see it as a learnable skill. What do you see as the most difficult situations that leaders need to overcome, bearing this in mind? Huh, so the most difficult situations that leaders have to overcome, I think often it's themselves, right? It's their own imposter thought. It's their brains that say, that, that build that resistance that say, oh, stress is bad, avoid it. Look, I'm all about lean into the stress. That's a good signal. Uh, so often, you know, you're talking about building resilience and, and it's my strong belief that every stressful moment is an opportunity to either build yourself or betray yourself. And the easy route is always to betray yourself. And your brain is, is 
programmed to say, go the easy route, save the calories, you know, buy the burger, do the, <laughs> do the simple thing. But usually that simple thing is not the right thing. So, um, so to me, I think the biggest obstacle is, is ourselves, is learning those patterns of behavior that we have that, that pull us into the simple route that isn't always the right one. So we tend to betray ourselves rather than build ourselves in those moments. Yeah, and I, I love that expression, the opportunity to build or betray. I think that's fantastic. Mm, and in fact, uh, that's probably going to be next week's podcast episode. <laughs> good. So I'll be back. A, that's, a, that's, a, that's an absolute cracker. That's really good. Thank you for that. Thank you. Appreciate it. When we talk about the basic demeanor of a leader, we all get to choose the way we turn up each day. And I think that pragmatic optimism and gratitude are readily evident in pretty much every great leader I've ever seen, even though I haven't come into contact with too many really great leaders. Are gratitude and optimism outcomes of a high EQ or are they prerequisites to developing a high EQ? Yes, and um, I think, you know, these are all practice skills. So one feeds into the other, but all of the research, at least on, on happiness, now, often we look at people and they're happy and they're like, oh, well, they're happy because they've got that yacht and they have this success. And, and all the research will suggest, actually, it's the opposite. So happiness precedes success. And I would say often then that would make sense that gratitude precedes this EQ. Um, I do think they both feed into one another. But yeah, I think starting with optimism, starting with gratitude uh, does help in the development of all of those other skills. Right. And then, and then did I understand that correctly? It's sort of like a virtuous circle that just keeps feeding in a cycle as you get more grateful, um, you know, have more optimism and then get the success from that, from leadership? So this is the wild thing, right? The way our brains operate, we really do create our realities more than we recognize. So the more we're looking for gratitude, the more we're looking for um, things going well, the more we'll see it. And we say in neurobiology that neurons that fire together, wire together. So those neurons begin to fire together, like, oh, gratitude, success, yay, these things are going right. And then that literally wires a different pathway in our brain that allows us to see that more frequently. And right. now we start to see it more frequently, and suddenly that becomes our reality. So yeah, it is this virtuous cycle, and the more you look for it, the more you'll find it, the more you find it, the more easily it is you look for it. Right, so is this, is this aligned with the concept of neuroplasticity, or is that something slightly different? <laughs> Um, yes, and. <laughs> so, <neuroplasticity laughs> I'm getting a lot of yes, and. This is no, awesome. It's great. It's great. Neuro neuroplasticity is, is sort of a broader concept. Yes, you, you can change your brain, right? That's the coolest thing. So the easiest demonstration of neuroplasticity is simply this. Like, do you remember the first time you drove a car? Yes. Yeah. And your hands are probably 10 and 2 and you're like, oh my gosh, there are street signs and pedestrians. Today, you drove with one hand on the wheel, leaned back, listened to your own podcast, right? Talking on your cell phone. You're not even paying attention. That's incredible. Because what that means is that you've literally trained the cells in your brain to recognize and respond to this constantly changing task, driving, without your conscious awareness. So that's in part neuroplasticity. You're, you're rewiring your brain to perform tasks without, without your conscious input. That's amazing. It, it is amazing. And, and I drive in Boston, so I think some people have taken that oh. way too far. Yeah. not paying attention. It's, uh, right. But, but it's all good. So the good, I mean, the good news there, right, is that your brain is super plastic. It, you can change, your brain's different right now than it was 30 seconds before you heard me say that sentence. So all of these things that we're talking about today, like you can change, you can grow, that's on you. That's, that's incredibly empowering, I think. 
it totally is, and that and that I guess supports this concept that we talk about uh, being a constant learner and always being curious to ask Absolutely. the right questions. And and you know you're never too old to do that. Um, every day I'm still going, hey, you know what does that mean? <laughs> and, exactly. and always finding things that I haven't come across before, and I still find super interesting. So that's a good sign, right? Absolutely. Now um, I know you do uh, a lot of big keynote speeches here in the U.S. And you'll really appreciate this story. Uh, in the Q&A after a recent uh, keynote that I gave, I was asked by someone in the audience, what's the one thing that you would recommend to overcome conflict aversion? Now, as much as I was tempted to say, mate, I just spent 45 minutes explaining it to you in an entertaining but professionally structured way. <laughs> but I didn't say that. Instead, I said, just do everything you can to focus on the other person rather than yourself. Now, if you say it fast enough, it sounds easy, but I think it's only fair to ask you the same thing. So, Rebecca, what's the one thing that you'd suggest to people who are trying to improve their EQ? So, Marty, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give your line back to you slightly flip. Just do everything you can to focus on yourself rather than the other person. Oh, here we go. <laughs> because, yeah, because if you're improving EQ, I think you have to start with yourself. Nice. I think you have to start to recognize those reactions and responses that you're having before you can see them in anyone else, because it's, it's our natural tendency to point and, and place blame and say, oh, well, that person's not doing it right. And then I'm responding to that person. But really, as leaders, you know, we're, we're plucking the strings of other people uh, by just showing up as we are. Mm. So I think look at yourself first, recognize how you're showing up, understand what your triggers are so that you can begin to understand other people's behaviors better. Yeah, fantastic. Love it. And um, of course, I'm a huge believer in uh, self-reflection, introspection, and awareness, which I think you can't lead or have a decent EQ without. My concept of the conflict situation is, if you get too tied up in your own head, you're only worried about your own fear, your own anxiety, your own apprehension, instead of thinking about what it means to the other person. So, you know, do I, do I avoid something because I think it's going to be hard for me, and so I can avoid it and rationalize as to why I'm doing that? Or do I look at the other person and say, this person actually needs me to give them this feedback right now. And so regardless of my own feelings, I'm going to do it. So I guess that's, yeah. that's where I come from when I talk about that, that conflict um, uh, ability to walk in comfortably. Now, I love it. I have a close colleague, clinical psychologist, who believes that leaders are born, not made. You straddle the worlds of both psychology and leadership. So I've got to ask you, are leaders born or made, or is it a combination of both? All right, so I'm a biologist, right? We always talk about, is it the genes or is it the environment? What makes you, you? And the answer is always, yeah, both. It's, gen it's genetics and it's environment. So the science has been showing, you know, leaning more and more heavily toward the environment. So leaders aren't born. Nobody is born exactly as they're going to turn out or made along the way. And uh, especially with this really exciting field of epigenetics, where you're literally changing uh, how genes are expressed during your lifetime. So turning on and turning off the gene expression of how you show up, your phenotype changes over your lifetime. Like that's super, I'm getting nerdy, sorry. Um, that's really <laughs> exciting. But like, it means you can evolve yourself. Yeah. Uh, so I'm, I'm a big believer that that, yeah, there are some innate characteristics that people are born with that, that may predispose them to being leaders. But I absolutely believe that if you give me anyone, we can create a leader from them. I love that. 
and you've just come straight onto my beliefs. So at that point, we're going to cut it off because we're just completely aligned at this particular point. But I must say, well, that's Rebecca, no fun. That's no, 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 fun. no. I must say that in the last 30 minutes, my brain has changed its shape because of what you've said. And I really appreciate that. So thank you. I'm so, thank you. So Rebecca, I really appreciate you joining me on the No Bullshit Leadership Podcast and adding your expert voice to this critical subject. Where can our leaders go to find out more about you? The easiest place is always my website. So that is just RebeccaHeiss.com. No worries. And we'll leave a link in the show notes. So thank you so much for that. And uh, I'll look forward to having you in the next conversation where I need to dig deep on the way we behave. Awesome. Thanks so much, Marty. This has been fun. All right. So that brings us to the end of episode 256. I really hope you enjoyed this expert look at the world of emotional intelligence and a deep thanks once again to Rebecca Heiss for helping us to navigate the maze. Thanks so much for joining us. And remember, at Your CEO Mentor, our purpose is to improve the quality of leaders globally. So please make sure you subscribe to No Bullshit Leadership on your favourite podcast player. I'm really looking forward to next week's episode, The Boss Everyone Wants to Work For. Until then, I know you'll take every opportunity you can to be a no-bullshit leader. <laughs> <laughs>